0: Father, we thank you now for this time that we can ponder history. Lord, history that teaches us so much about your movement and your work and your decrees in the hearts of men. Father, a time in history when your word broke through the darkness of ignorance and abuse and persecution to shine in the hearts and minds of your people. And Lord, Lord, we know that your word cannot be thwarted, it cannot be stopped, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is powerful, and it will accomplish all that you desire. And so we pray as we continue in our study of the history of the Reformation that you'll help us to glean important truths as we see how your hand was moving amongst your people. Lord, how you overcame all those who sought to work against you. And Lord, that we, as your people in this day and age, would have a greater appreciation for what we stand upon today and the freedoms and the truths that we have because the word of God has been placed in our hands. And so we commit this time to you and we thank you for it. And we pray that you'll bless it and our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, I realize one of the things that was always challenging, and, you know, I chastised Pastor Ron for this, because he says, well, why don't you do the history of the Reformation, and then, and then I'll do the gods. You know? <laughs> so it's like, okay, you know, I get to do the history. And you know um, that history sometimes, when we hear the word history, I happen to love history. I love history. Some of you may not have share those same sentiments. But history is very important. And so before we get going today, I know sometimes when we teach on history, it can sound kind of monotone. It can sound kind of like a lecture, which in a sense it is. But I want to challenge all of you to engage your cognitive skills today. um, Because I really think it's important that you understand the progression of historical movement that took place to get us to where we are today. And I think if you can grasp what we have been talking about over the last couple weeks and then again today, when we get into the actual study of these great men, these great reformers, and we're going to talk about pre-reformers, uh, John Wycliffe, John Huss, we're going to talk about those in the Reformation, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, uh, many of those men, uh, Biza, we're going to be talking about post-reformers and how, how all of these uh, movements came together to bring us to where we are today. But that will be appreciated much more if you have a good, solid understanding of the basic flow of history through this time that we call the Reformation. And I remember when I was in seminary and I had Professor Hendricks as my church history teacher, and I remember going into class and one day and he said, "Uh, for the next year, we're going to be studying the Reformation, the history of the Reformation. I thought, a year? Are you kidding me? You know, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm in the wrong class. I'm, you know, it was one of the greatest classes I ever took, and uh, so I really uh, was glad that I uh, stuck it out. And um, actually, I didn't have enough money to transfer to another class, so God made it. So I had to stay there. But um, anyway, let's get into this. Um, we began talking about. Um, the Reformation, and notice on your, um, all of you should have an outline, a syllabus, so to speak. And um, we did a, a short introduction to the Reformation. We talked about how the church and the state were postured at the time. One of the greatest problems with the Catholic Church that Luther began to worry about was the sale of indulgences, this idea that you could buy your way out of heaven and you could, uh, you could pay for uh, righteousness. He kind of commercialized the faith. Luther, of course, uh, began to study the scriptures and came to the conclusion that the scriptures indeed taught justification by faith alone in the scriptures alone. And then uh, we know that that didn't go down well, and there was a counter-reformation by the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and at the Council of Trent, we know that the Roman Catholics came together and reaffirmed not only the doctrine of purgatory, but indulgences and all of the liturgy and the ritual pretty much of the Catholic Church. So that was week one. Week two, remember, we started talking a little more in detail about Martin Luther. So we took our focus off the Reformation in general and we began to talk about Luther. Um, I gave you a sheet in your uh, syllabus, I-, I think I did, of understanding terms. Did you have that sheet? Yeah. Uh, okay, good. And uh, things that you should be familiar with. Uh, when we talk about a diet, what are we talking about? Who can tell me real quickly? Are we talking about not eating any carbs? (laughs) What are we talking about? A council. council, right. When we talk about the diet of worms, a, a a diet is a council. It is a council of legislature, typically by the Catholic Church or others where they meet. So when we talk about the diet of worms, worms Germany, we're talking about a council that met in Germany in the city of worms. So understand those terms. We talked about indulgences. We've talked about that. There are other terms there that you can uh, look at and familiarize yourself with. So the second week we talked a little bit about Martin Luther's justification by faith alone, in other words, how he stood on this, and how he began to challenge these indulgences, and how he began to quarrel with uh, Roman Catholicism on uh, how this was man-centered, man-made, and really he considered heresy, and of course they considered him a heretic, And so in light of his newfound theological truth, remember that Martin Luther then nailed his 95 theses to the door on the church at Wittenberg. And what was the reason that he did this? And I want to reiterate this again. Why did Martin Luther present these theses to the Catholic Church? What was his goal in all of
1: this?
0: He wanted to spark a debate. debate. Right, Lucy. It wasn't to start a Protestant Reformation. Listen, Luther had no clue when he did this what was going to happen through Europe. It wasn't like he said, I'm starting the reformation and I'm going to nail these things down. He nailed them because he wanted to debate the Catholic Church. He wanted to talk about these things. He was concerned. And of course, um, we know that the church did not respond favorably to that. And because of that, there was not only growing protest and reform on those who were to espouse Protestantism, and there was also protest amongst the Roman Catholic Church And that's where we're going to be headed today. Um, We're going to start by looking at the response of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if I taped this or not. I don't think so. I'm not taping it now. It's probably a good thing. Um, So if you uh, need to get notes, maybe you could, from the last two uh, Sunday school classes, maybe you could get with someone else. But we want to talk this morning about the response of the church, the Catholic Church. Obviously, when the pope got word of these 95 theses, uh, when they came to Rome, their reception was cold. Uh, There was a pope in charge at that point. I guess this is being taped. Uh, Were the other two being taped? The
1: last one wasn't taped, but it should have been.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Pope Leo X was the pope at the time, and he wanted to act very methodically to respond to Luther's theses. And so he ordered the vicar general of the uh, Augustine order to place a ban of silence on its monks. In other words, the first thing Pope Leo X did when he read these theses is he kind of shut down any talk of this among the monks. And this move was intended to quiet or silence any discontent that might start within the ranks of the Roman Catholic Church, and it was... Uh, aimed at quieting the discontent um, and the unwarranted attention to this schism in the church. Um, Remember that we often think of uh, the Protestant Reformation as being only uh, those outside of the Roman Catholic Church who were protesting. But many of the monks, many of the scholars within the Roman Catholic Church also began to question the, uh, the doctrine of the church, although they did it in a much more passive way, as you can understand. So, uh, at any rate, hearing about this, Luther was concerned, and he responded by sending a personal letter of clarification of his theses to the Pope, to Pope Leo X. And this resulted in Pope Leo personally summoning Luther to appear before him in Rome. So this is the beginnings of what we could call, in modern day terms, the showdown at the Corral. O.K. Corral. This was inevitably a time when Luther was being drawn to stand in front of the highest authorities in Roman Catholicism. Um, but before this occurred, there was an agreement between Luther and the Pope that he would meet with the Pope's representative uh, a man by the name of Cardinal Cajetan, and you have probably heard of him. If you know anything about Catholic theology, you'll know that he was a very prominent representative of the Pope. And so this cardinal and Luther met in Augsburg, Germany, and the whole intent of the Pope allowing this was for this cardinal to try to reign Luther in. In other words, the Pope was trying to say, look, we've got to shut this guy up. We've got to stop this. Uh, this movement that Luther is stirring up trouble. And so uh, they wanted to rein him in. There's been enough harm done. The Pope said, we need to stop this right now. At the same time, Rome issued a papal bull. What do we mean when we say a papal bull? Let's not assume we all understand this. What is a papal bull? Exactly. A bull is a creed by the Pope. It's It's a declarative statement. It's a summons. It's a decree. So, the pope, when we talk about a papal, the pope, papal bull, this is a decree by the pope. And he sent out a papal bull that, uh, that demanded that all of the people acknowledge the pope's authority and also the power of the Catholic Church behind these indulgences. So, the cardinal, he thought, would try to shut Luther down, but at the same time, he issued this papal bull and said, I have authority, and you will abide by all of the creeds that we lay down, including the power to grant indulgences. Now, does anybody remember from last week, what was Pope Leo X's motivation in upping these sale of indulgences? Does anybody remember what was going on at the same time? Okay, they were building what? St. Peter's Basilica, right. So Pope Leo X wanted to fund... St. Peter's. So what better way than to charge indulgences, right? We need to pray everybody out of heaven. And his representatives basically said that everybody really ought to pay indulgences. And it even got to the point where they would approach Catholics and say, you know, you're going to sin, so why don't you pay it now? Like pay early. You know, it's the pay early plan, so when you do, you're covered. So this money was uh, brought in by the Pope to build St. Peter's Basilica. By the way, they must have done a good job. I have been in St. Peter's Basilica. Has anybody ever been in there? This place is, I mean, when you, if you want to talk just architecturally, this place is off the charts. Um, I've never seen a building like this. Like I said, you could hang glide from the top of this thing right down to the floor. I mean, it's, it's massive. It's just, and it is full of as many icons as you can imagine. And it's very ornate. Um, so he must have raised a fair amount of money to get this thing built. But anyway, that's a little side note. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, well, that would be purgatory. That's uh, when someone went to purgatory, and we talked a little bit about purgatory, which was kind of an intermediate state where people would go that weren't quite qualified enough for heaven. So the Catholic Church, and this was again. Does anybody know where the doctrine of purgatory was um, really instituted and affirmed? What council? We just said it, the Council of Trent. So where they affirmed that purgatory was um, a place where people would go, an intermediate place whose souls were not quite pure enough to be granted access into heaven, and so you had the opportunity to kind of pray for the dead, pray for those in purgatory, and uh, I don't know how the Catholic Church ever figured out when you had been prayed up enough. Maybe Pastor Ron can answer that. How did we, I don't, I don't know how you ever know, like, okay, you've, you, I don't, you think they know. I don't think they did either. Like, I always wondered if there was a hot phone. Oh, okay. Joe's good. Okay. I'm sending him up. You know, I, I don't know really how that worked, but um, uh, I've never really read about, you know, how they know that. I guess if they got enough money and they prayed enough, apparently, you know, they just figured you'd be okay. Anyways, um, so what happened? When Luther met with Cardinal Kajetan, uh these were very unproductive negotiations, as you might expect. Uh, so the pope issued what, we came to, what came to be known as the Exerge Domine in 1520. This was another papal bull that the pope sent out that was a direct attack on Martin Luther and it ordered the immediate withdrawal of what he saw is about 41 theological errors in these 95 theses of, uh, of Luther. And, uh, and Luther was given 60 days to comply with this papal bull. And uh, throughout Germany, uh, the papal bull was sent out. It was received with contempt. The people were really starting to rebel. This was not something they appreciated. Uh, they were growing more and more discontent with the Pope in Germany, so it wasn't received well. In many places, this document was publicly burned. There were riots. Luther himself took his copy and publicly burned it. So very defiant against what the Pope had to say. Um, And uh, also, Luther took some of the writings of the Catholic Church's ecclesiastical canon law, and he burned those documents as well. Now, here again, when it comes to church history, you know, we read something like this, and we often lose the magnitude of what was going on. So, for example, let's just say this. Let's say that um, there were a group of people outside of Faith Baptist Church that didn't like our Constitution or our doctrinal statement, and so they decided to go across the street and take a copy of our Constitution and doctrinal statement and burn it on their front lawn. What do you think would happen? Nothing. Nothing. Right? I mean, we would be like, man, thats uh, they need the gospel, man.
1: They're just lost. you know.
0: I mean, and I'm not trying to be uh, trite about this, but I want you to understand that we, we, we don't often understand how radical this would have been because we don't live in a day and age where the consequences of going against the church are as severe as they were back then. And you have to understand, listen, you could be burned at the stake. You could be put to death. The Catholic Church had absolute authority over you. And there were no ifs, hands, or buts about it. So these ideas of riots, of people burning the papal bull of, of, of Luther, defying Rome, this was a huge deal. This was not just some minor, oh, well, you know, let's make a stand, and aren't we pious, and look at what I'm doing here. Okay, there were severe consequences for things like this, and uh, when this happened... It enraged the pope, and he saw this as a direct attack on his authority. And so this did not obviously go over well with him. It was at this point that the pope had Luther excommunicated from the church. Again, back in that day, that was a huge deal. So Luther was excommunicated at that point. Uh, in 1521, Leo X issued what's called the De Set Romanum Pontificum which banished Luther from the church. Uh, Luther was ordered at that point to appear before the Diet of Worms. This is a very important uh, time. Again, the showdown at the O.K. Corral. Again, the Diet of Worms was a general assembly of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, The emperor at that time, Charles V, personally directed the assembly, and Luther was summoned, and here he was to address the assembly concerning whether he had authored various writings that had been attributed to him, and to acknowledge whether or not he espoused the contents of these writings. And there were a lot of threats, as you can imagine, against Luther. I'm sure the Roman Catholic Church at that point wanted him dead in the worst way. But there was an elector prince, and remember we said in the provinces of Germany there were provinces that were governed by princes, and again, I I made the reference to China today, that they they had different provinces, and each province in Germany was represented or or governed by a prince, and these princes, to some degree, had autonomy in the way that they governed their province, and there was one of these princes who was uh, named uh, Frederick III of Saxony, and He felt compassion for Luther and came alongside of Luther, and Frederick made sure that Luther got free and safe passage to and from the assembly. So uh, here again we see the hand of God, don't we, protecting Luther? That uh, Frederick came along and made sure that he was safe, and uh, Luther then arrived in worms, and this set the stage for one of the most famous showdowns between Luther and the Catholic Church that there was. And this was the showdown at the Diet of Worms. Now, there's another important figure that we need to talk about uh, John or Johann Eck. He was a former friend of Luther's. He uh, had turned into a bitter enemy. He was the one that really represented the archbishop, the archdiocese, and He was the one who promoted indulgences. He was also the one who uh, was responsible for delivering these papal bulls by letter to enforce the Pope's will upon the people. And um, he basically uh, was one who questioned Luther. And we know that Luther refused to recant or retract any of his writings on the ground that they, by both the Holy Scripture and his own conscience, as led by God, uh, were true, and he was determined to stand fast by his beliefs. So this former friend turned bitter enemy against him was one of the ones who questioned Luther thoroughly at this diet of worms. And after Luther refused to recant, he refused to change his views, we know that the uh, session uh, ended and they met in private council for several days before they would pass a sentence regarding Martin Luther. And, uh, and in the end, the verdict pronounced upon Luther was very severe. He was declared to be a heretic by the Catholic Church. He was declared to be an outlaw. His literature was to be banned. He was to be arrested. And it also became a crime for anyone within the empire to give Luther safe haven. So Frederick was at risk as well because that's exactly what he had done. Further, this assembly sanctioned the death of Martin Luther. And they said that uh, if he were to die, there would be no legal consequences under the law by the Roman Catholic Church. It would be like, oh, well. So basically, they put a bounty on his head um, and really wanted him dead. Um, And so in every sense, they were condoning murder. So you see the hypocrisy of Roman Catholicism, you see the hypocrisy of of how they dealt with those who did not agree with them. Now the proclamation at the Diet of Worms became known then as the Edict of Worms. This was the pronouncement, uh, the proclamation. So what was the Edict of Worms? Uh, And it was that they all but put a bounty on Luther's head. They never said that publicly, but basically it was understood. And as you can imagine, Frederick, still concerned, wanted to protect Luther. And so we had him secretly removed to this place called Wartburg Castle. And he lived in Wartburg Castle for a year. Luther was in exile for a year. And this really saved him. And it was during this year that, what do you think Luther did during this year at Wartburg Castle? You think he played, huh? Right, he translated the Bible, but he also continued to write vigorously against the Catholic Church. Luther was not to be stopped. And he continued his attacks, he expanded uh, his criticism against Catholicism, and he included uh, required confessions. As you know, the Catholic Church preaches the need for confession and the Church's interpretation of good works. It was at this time also, as Lucy said that Luther translated the New Testament into German. So Luther was a busy man in a year. Um, I don't know that I could translate the Bible into a language in a year because I only know English, so I know I couldn't. But anyway, even if I knew another language, I'm not sure that I could do that. But um, he uh, translated this. It expanded the reading of Scripture in the vernacular, in the common, and this again got distributed to the people. So the word of God was getting back into the hands of the people. And isn't it amazing how God's word will go forth? God's word cannot be stopped. And you can be assured of that. You know, in spite of man's best efforts, God's word will not be stopped. And I just think this is such an incredible uh, revelation of God's sovereignty and his power because, again, in the day, this would have seemed impossible that one man could do what Luther did. Just incredible. And isn't it amazing, and we should take great comfort in this, that, you know, lest you think as one person in Christ that you're just, oh, well, what am I going to do? Don't ever think that way in Christ. Because you know what? The the Holy Spirit that empowered Luther is the same Holy Spirit that empowers you. And you know what? Twelve men turned the world upside down, right? So what could we as a church, what could we as individuals do? Don't ever negate the power of God to work in you and through you. Um, whether you're witnessing, don't be afraid to stand for truth. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? And we see this in Luther's uh, testimony in his, uh, you know, uh, in his uh, protest not to reform to the Catholic Church uh, and to reform according to the Scriptures. Okay, so. That brings us down to this growing protest toward the reform and the internal dispute, and that should be one of the things in your outline. So what happened from this point on? In 1522, Luther's writings uh, started really a wave of reform and disorder. Even within the Augustinian order of monks, they were now in open rebellion. Many of these guys, we don't often hear about this, but there was a real problem. And all over Germany, there was protest. And as the situation deteriorated, there was civil unrest that increased. And it was at this point that Luther was concerned about this. And it was at this point in 1522 that Luther came out of hiding and Luther secretly returned to Wittenberg. Now, why did he return to Wittenberg? He uh, went to Wittenberg. He delivered several sermons on the value and the patience of freedom. And so he condemned the violence. In other words, Luther came back and he said, look, this is not the way. And he was very concerned about this and gave a series of sermons to people and actually succeeded greatly in calming the people down because they had started to revolt. This was turning into a real riot. And um, he restored order. Uh, he was, really became a conservative voice among the reform movement uh, uh, compared to many. And he advocated moderation. In other words, he understood that this was a work of God, that this was not the way to get things done. Um, And um, so he was, uh, again, able to get the people under control. Now, the control of the Roman Empire had come into contention between the emperor and the pope by the 1520s. Remember, there was an emperor as well over civil government. And with the crowning of a man named Charlemagne, the Catholic Church laid claim to religious authority as well as power over secular rulers of the empire. So again, the Catholic Church, by its own accord, declared power over even the secular rules. And so Charles V, who was in control at that time, uh, his power was limited uh, and And it opened the door for another reform at the assembly of what we call the first Diet of Speyer. And this Diet was held in the summer of 1526, and it was held to address the advancing Protestant Reformation and the implementation of the Edict of Worms. And uh, among the things that I mentioned to you, the Edict at Worms made it a crime to spread or teach the writings that were believed or espoused by Martin Luther. And so, one by one, German Protestant princes professed their new beliefs to the diet. Um, And while this diet was not to annul the edict of worms, it had a similar effect in Germany. And what it basically said was, we are giving the power back to the civil authorities, and we are saying through this diet, it's fire, that Every province has the right to live and to rule and to believe as they may and that they are only answerable to God. This was another huge turning point in the spread of the Reformation. This Diet of Spire we don't often hear about, but this was again, now civil authority starting to turn against the authority that the Roman Catholic Church was trying to hold sway over them. So that each German province in the Holy Roman Empire had the right as, as the princes over them to act as they pleased in regard to religious reform and um, they held a council uh, and uh, actually uh, for 20 years they practiced the advance of Protestantism Protestantism during this time began to advance and it advanced because again there was a declaration of independence to each one of these provinces so Luther got this temporary acquittal basically what happened was everything kind of fell dormant Um, it's like in our court system today you know you can hear a a very serious case and then they'll say you know it can be put on hold for two or three years and so basically what happened for about 20 years this thing just got put on hold and um, so the Roman uh, officials didn't really contest what these Government officials had uh, charged by way of freedom, freedom, even though they opposed what was going on. So it was kind of a more of a a verbal uh, contesting of this freedom, not so much an action against it. But the Reformation, as I said, was not okay. Any questions on that or any comments? I know I start rambling on here, and then I just get you know rambling. Any questions or thoughts on that? So. Is this giving you a little bit of a picture, a little bit of an understanding of kind of how we're moving along? Is anybody really tracking with me, or is it like, I don't know what he's talking about up there? So, okay, I've taken that as a no. <laughs> <clears throat> so, said, this is really good. I didn't really ever look into the but the history of it. I heard some of like that there's a point Right. Well, typically when we study the Reformation, we get the cliff note version, don't we? You know, like we get a summary of the Reformation in a a paragraph or two or maybe an article. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to have a summary of it. But I think it's important that we understand more thoroughly what happened. And um, lest you think that there was not much bloodshed before this all ended, let me tell you that almost two-thirds of the populations in Germany were killed because of the Protestant Reformation. And we're gonna talk about that. This was a incredibly bloody battle before Protestantism was firmly and permanently established in Europe. So there is a lot ahead that, um, and I'm gonna try to get through this in uh, 20 minutes so we can see what happens. But, the Protestant Reformation uh, spread to other lands and, um, we see that there was discontent happening all over Europe. And in Switzerland, uh, Ulrich Zwingli became the catalyst for change when he raised issues uh, with the Catholic custom of fasting, with clerical marriage, and the use of iconic images. So we have all heard of Zwingli, I hope. He was a famous Swiss reformer. How many of you have ever been to Switzerland? Anybody ever been to Switzerland? Okay, how many of you have been to the Reformation Well? Fascinating. I've been there too it's, and I was in calvin 's church. It was amazing and they had some of his original writings you know preserved, um, incredibly fascinating. But if you ever get a chance to go to Switzerland, make a stop at the Reformation wall, one of your key spots to visit and uh, uh, calvin 's church is right there i mean it 's like almost right there, so you can take in calvin 's church too, very unassuming, uh, incredible history there. Um, You could spend like three days there just reading all the stuff on the wall. But uh, very, very interesting. But anyway, Zwingli uh, began to protest. And he also began to develop a new liturgy for communion in place of the Catholic Mass. He saw Mass as heretical. And so Zwingli's beliefs began to spread throughout the Swiss Confederation and divided it along religious lines. And... um, We know by 1522 that Zwingli had publicly confronted Catholic authority there and he published his ideas concerning the corruption within the church's ecclesiastical hierarchy. So Zwingli now begins this thrust in Switzerland. The Reformation continued to charge forward. Uh, Disputes within the Protestant movement demanded change, as you can imagine. Um, and you know, it, lest you think that all of the reformers in all of the countries came together and all agreed on the same doctrine, you would be sadly mistaken. Um, hence, in Protestantism today, we have all kinds of different denominations. Don't we? Um, now, how many of those today are yet true Protestantism? I, I'm not going to say, but not many, I would say, are really holding to reformed values. But, you know, when you see your Lutherans and your Presbyterians and your Baptists and you see different denominations, um, we see that there was dispute early on within the Protestant movement and uh, there was an arbitration that was needed and so these groups came together in 1529 in order to close ranks and um, the conference was called to address growing political concerns of unity. but. At the heart of the issue, even beyond the political unity, the church started to fear danger of disunity in their theological beliefs. And so the primary meeting of this conference in 1529 was to establish religious harmony amongst the reformers. They wanted a unified Protestant theology, and they needed that to reconcile differing views within the movement particularly between Luther and Zwingli. Luther and Zwingli started to clash. Does anybody know what they clashed on? Anybody want to take a stab at this? The Lord's
1: Supper.
0: The Lord's Supper. And what was the problem? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. A- absolutely, Will.
1: Yeah, uh, I think the issue...
0: You know, was... you should teach Sunday school sometime. <laughs> I think you really... Uh, Go ahead.
1: I think, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the issue was uh, the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. yes.
0: Exactly. Luther preached that the Lord's substance was in the supper. Zwingli preached that it was symbolic only. So I have to go along with Zwingli on this one. You know. As much as I love Luther, I think he got it wrong on this one. But this was a big contention between Z- Zwingli and Luther. And so they were uh, really uh, at odds with this. And along with this, there were pro- approximately 14 other points of dispute. They were considered in church history to be lesser items, um, but as a result of this conference, they did settle some of these disputes, but there were still divergent views concerning the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, so Zwingli and Luther did not come together in their understanding of this particular point. Um, they, they couldn't agree on Holy Communion. Um, again, Luther believing that the bread and wine were united with the body and blood of Christ. Zwingli held them to be symbolic of the two, and so Lutherans would leave refusing to acknowledge Zwingli and his followers as true Protestants, but the overall consensus had been reached, and the meeting, this conference, did produce an alliance within Protestant ranks, and it did, again, increase the threat to Roman Catholicism. So there were a lot of things they came together on. Uh, There were some things that they didn't. And, you know, I look at it a lot today, although it was more severe at the time, uh, the differences between us as Reformed Baptists and our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, right? I wouldn't consider them heretics, amen, right? You know, we would not espouse, for example, paedo-baptism. You know, we don't see even our covenantal laws the same way they would. But they are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So, what we're saying is this that on major theological doctrines, those issues that we cannot agree to disagree on, we're in harmony. And there are secondary issues that we may not be always agreeing on, but we have unity with them. We see them and recognize them as true brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who are reformed those who hold to the orthodox views of scripture, especially in the areas of soteriology. So any thoughts or questions on that so far? What was the name of this yes, very good question. Uh, it was called the Mar- Marburg uh, Colloquy. Marburg Colloquy. I had to think about that because I never say it right. Yes, 1529, the Marburg Colloquy. I didn't say it because... You know, I'm from Chicago, and I can't speak right. So, and I, I'm just leaving. It alone. I say, you know, Dub Bears. You know. I guess we're not a lot of football you fans in Yeah, B E A R S Bears. Oh, you mean? Uh, oh, Mar. Yes. Okay. So it's M-A-R-B-U-R-G, M-A-R-B-U-R-G, C-O-L-L-O-Q-U-Y. And the other was
1: from Warren is the Bears.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Emphasis on duh. Okay. Okay. Yes, question. Uh, the issue
1: of Matthew, the Lord's Supper with Luther, it, it was consubstantiation, right? Versus transubstantiation,
0: right. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I don't think it started out that way. And I think the influence of Roman Catholicism upon Luther one of the things, and I think John MacArthur said this best, um, was that some, in, in some areas the reformers didn't go far enough, you know, early on, and I think there's merit to that. Uh, we obviously would disagree with transubstantiation, which the Catholic Church taught meant that the, the body and the blood of the communion became the actual <laughs> body and blood of Christ. Consubstantiation. say it again. Consistence. Consistence, right was that, there were symbi- that the body and blood of Christ were representative in communion. And there is a sense in which we agree with that. You know, we, we, we agree with that. We also agree that it's symbolic. We don't see it as the actual body and blood of Christ. There's a lot of uh, debate in church history as to what Luther initially meant by that. Um, but, um, but again, this stayed an issue between the two. And, um, and even in Christian circles today, there is disagreement over this. There are those who would see it purely symbolic, those who would see it as not also representing, you know, the presence of the body and blood of Christ, the presence of Christ within the communion table. So is everybody clear on that? All right, so let's go down to the Reformation spreads. Um, There was a king in England named Henry VIII. There was a song about him. Anybody know that song? I'm not going to sing it, by the way. I'm Henry VIII. I am, you know, Henry. Forget it. Um, He, uh, when he came to power, he broke with the Roman Catholic Church uh, for different reasons. In 1525, he was married to a woman named Catherine of Aragon, and he wanted his marriage annulled, and the Pope refused to annul the marriage. And so... um, He began to look to the theological universities and Parliament in an attempt to challenge this papal supremacy over religious matters. And as a result, Parliament responded in England by passing a series of legislations which little by little began to strip the Catholic clergy clergy in England of its power. And in 1534, Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy. And they declared Henry VIII the supreme authority over the Church of England, another huge step forward in the Reformation, especially in England. And thus the king became the head of the church in England. He was given control of the finances and appointments to the church. And and this new Anglican church uh, annulled uh, Henry's previous marriage and moved with Parliament to validate Henry's marriage to his mistress, Anne Boylan. So... We're not going to go there. Uh, don't think that was a crowning moment in church decision. Um, but as a result of that, at the time then, Pope Clement VII responded. He had Henry VIII excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And uh, this was kind of an act after the fact because uh, Henry VIII had already declared himself head over the Roman Church, so it was more in by way of just formal protest and nothing really became of it. And um, so he led, Um, after he passed away, his son, after Henry VIII passed away, his son Edward VI became the second Protestant king of England, but he would die at the age of 15. And um, after a brief power struggle, Mary Tudor, Henry's daughter by Catherine of Aragon, assumed the throne. How many of you have heard of Bloody Mary? This is her. Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of King Henry VIII. She was a staunch Roman Catholic, and Mary reconciled England with Rome. She worked through Parliament to pass what was called the Marian Religious Acts that effectively restored Catholicism in England and reinstated several uh, heresy acts. So in other words, working against Protestantism And she began a series of persecutions that lasted for four years, and it saw the execution of many leading Protestants, several hundred being burned at the stake, and she would eventually be known as Bloody Mary amongst the English Protestants. So when you hear about her, you can see her place in church history. But when she died, another of Henry's daughters assumed the throne. It would be Elizabeth I, and she reinstated the Supremacy Act of the Church. So she brought Protestantism back again. And um, and she claimed the Protestant Anglican Church is the official authority in England. So you can see the power struggles here that went on in these nations. And um, Pope Pius V then had Elizabeth excommunicated. And um, they uh, anyone who followed her were considered to be traitors. So we see England was going through its birth pangs of the reformation but then we get to france and who do we note in france was a great reformer none other than john calvin right and he would become the catalyst for the protestant reformation movement there Uh, calvin was trained as a lawyer i don't know if you know that but he began to question catholicism in 1536 he published the institutes of christian religion And this moved to set in place a theocratic structure for the Protestant Church. And uh, he was the leader of what's called the Huguenot Movement in France. And uh, Calvin, through this, directly attacked the Catholic beliefs as far as their rituals. He attacked their doctrine of purgatory, their understanding of saints who were deified, the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, and the Pope's worldly kingdom. So Calvin directly attacked these things. And from Geneva, Calvin would begin to support the Huguenot Church before he moved to uh, Strasbourg. And he viewed the Catholic Church as being nothing less than a mockery to God's grace. Calvin, an incredible man of God. He saw it as human tyranny over Christianity. Um, And this break from the Catholic Church in France led to decades of religious wars. There were wars that took place all over the place because of this. Um, Peace was finally found in the Edict of Nantes in 1598, where uh, the Protestants were granted religious and political freedom. Um, And this Edict of Toleration remained in place uh, until Louis XIV came to power nearly 100 years later. So that lasted in France quite a while. But there was a protege of John Calvin in Geneva, and does anybody know who that protege was? John, anybody know? John Knox, right? John Knox, um, he would be the first to rise to prominence, actually, in the Church of England. Um, he was a clergyman and came there after his exile from Scotland. And with the rise of Mary Tudor and the brief restoration of Catholicism in England, Knox moved to the continent to avoid persecution, and he wrote uh, an article called The First Blast of the Trumpet, which was a protest against the unnatural rule of women under which Mary ruled, so he took issue with that, and Mary Stewart, he viewed both of them to be wicked and uh, tyrannical, and uh, he returned to Edinburgh, Scotland, and he became the leader of the Scottish Revolution against the Catholic resurgency that took place in 1560. Um, He was one of the authors of the Scots Confession. He was instrumental in the Scottish parliaments abolishing the jurisdiction of the Pope in Scotland, and he banned the celebration of Mass there. Mass was completely banned at that time in Scotland. And he established the Protestant Church in Scotland, and he was really the one who established the very foundation of Presbyterianism. So that's where that started. Throughout the 16th century, Protestantism would become widely embraced in Scandinavia, in Sweden and Finland. The Vatican began to lose control. Um, in the late 1500s, there was a break between the king and the Pope over ecclesiastical affairs. Um, and we see that there was a lot of unrest. Uh, People were yielding to Protestant ideas. Denmark, Norway, and Iceland were also involved in the Reformation. We don't often think that, do we? We don't understand how far-reaching the Reformation was, and it did spread like wildfire. Um, So uh, we see those countries um, going through their own Reformation. By the middle of the 16th century, the majority of Scandinavians claimed to be Protestant. And that brings us really to our last um, issue that I want to talk about, the 30-year war and the peace of Westphalia, and that should be on your outline. Now, there are more things on your outline there, your syllabus, but we're going to get to those when we talk about the, um, some of the individual reformers which will be subsequent to today. So let's talk about this a minute, and then we'll conclude. When Charles V was replaced as the Holy Roman Emperor, the alliance of Protestant princes was strengthened. Uh, Remember, in Germany, the signing of the Peace of Augsburg officially ended the religious struggles. It confirmed a legal and permanent division of Christendom within the empire. And this agreement in 1555 allowed the princes to permanently choose their religious affiliation. And this was huge. Uh, They could choose their religion within the confines of their controlled domains. And it gave Protestantism an official status within the empire. This was the first time that that had happened. So Protestantism was given an official status. And the agreement also effectively removed the threat of heresy. So you can imagine for the people how huge this was. I mean, if you were condemned as a heretic you know you could easily be put to death and many were and so it kind of removed that threat Um, and while not all Protestants were covered under this agreement the majority of the German Lutherans had security under their jurisdictions and so they saw great religious freedom in Germany Um, this reformation that started with Luther's 95 thesis had swept across Europe it had made a clean break from the Roman Catholic Church the Pope's authority But the struggle would continue for another 100 years and it would culminate with the Thirty Years' War. How many of you have ever heard of that? The Thirty Years' War. And this was a very, very horrible and bloody time.
1: Uh,
0: In 1618, Europe erupted in open warfare over the Protestant Reformation. And the Catholic Church sanctioned military action in its efforts to crush Protestantism. When it looked like the Protestant church had been established, Satan welled up again, and the Catholic church literally now endorsed military action, do whatever it takes to crush this movement. And the German provinces literally became open battlefields for religious supremacy. And by 1648, almost every European power was involved, and the impact would devastate the peoples of Europe. As I said, there were areas in Germany where two-thirds of its population were killed. Just think about that for a minute. Just think of two-thirds of the people in the United States were killed. Uh, It was a very, very bloody time. Uh, The powers of battle in Europe would ravage Germany. and, uh, And as the war waged on in many instances, and here's the tragedy, it had less to do with religious affairs and more to do with a conquest to grab power. Um, It wasn't so much even religious anymore, it was just a power grab. And uh, by the end of the war, uh, the dominance of the empire was severely curtailed, and the authority of the pope had been all but eliminated. So at the end of this 30-year war, as bloody as it was, the pope pretty much lost all power. And in 1648, the Peace of Westphalia would end the religious wars in Europe and it would validate the religious freedom for Protestants once and for all. And um, again, uh, this was a time of great destruction. Majorities of populations were killed, but the church and the Protestant movement was now permanently divided from Roman Catholicism. So we see uh, that there was a lot of bloodshed. There was a lot of... um, Faith and courage shown to give us the freedoms that we enjoy today, having open Bibles in front of us, and uh, this was uh, again a time in history like none other. Um, the impact of the Reformation is still being felt tremendously today. Uh, there is uh, no lack of uh, of um, influence of the Reformation. Who can tell me what are some of the ways in the last couple minutes that we have here that the Reformation may affects us today? How does the Reformation affect us today? Anybody want to just take a stab at that? Having the Bible. In English. I'm sorry. Having the Bible in English. Okay, having the Bible in English and one of the uh, biggest innovations way back when was the invention of the printing press, the Gutenberg printing press, and it was able to print literature. And so, yeah, we have the Bible in English. Uh, oh, okay. Anybody? I saw another hand somewhere. Did I? Yes. I was thinking specifically mm-hmm. out
1: of the Reformation and sort of that structure came our tradition and what and of our teaching. Absolutely. Particular battles. So yes. Even the, the persecutions in those things sort of caused yeah. churches to gather together, particular battles yeah. churches, to structure uh, a system of beliefs. Absolutely. Even we, as Baptists, particularly, yeah,
0: absolutely. And when we look at the five solas of the Reformation, when we see that we're justification by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, you know, we see those things. Those have an incredible impact on us today, and it still puts us at odds with Roman Catholicism, doesn't it? Um, Obviously, we're not suffering the persecution. Uh, We don't see the wars today, but Protestantism. Still stands on those stalwart doctrines, the orthodox doctrines of the faith that we get directly from Scripture. And we see our authority to be there.
1: Yeah, I was also thinking, even from the creeds that we have in in the confessing, those that came out of the Reformation has become for us a helpful, although it's not infallible, a helpful guardrail, those souls, Christians, souls, and these things that help us to better discern. What is closer or biblical, and what is not? So even today, as we consider different things, with so many different doctrines in the so-called church, those things help us to confess with our brothers and sisters of all these things which are true and biblical. Which absolutely. help us even today, again, determine what what is biblical and what is not. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, you know, we are blessed beyond measure to have, in this day and age, uh, we can presently benefit from all the sacrifices the Reformers made and the courage that they showed to stand up for that which was true. One more question.
1: So another benefit is the fact that we are encouraged to go to Scripture to establish our thinking as opposed to... Take from the, the
0: Absolutely. The clergy, right.
1: That, you know, they knew everything and you have to take their Absolutely. You, know, you were never told to exercise. No of your mind your yeah. in the gospel yeah.
0: absolutely and in the early days it was considered um, you were considered a criminal or a heretic if you owned a bible because the catholic church firmly taught that only the priests could determine and decipher scripture so the people were ignorant they were in darkness they had no understanding of the scriptures other than what the church told them you can imagine how that went right knowing the hearts of men so that's true alright well I appreciate that and uh, as I said you know Hopefully now as we get into some of the uh, individual reformers and we talk about their significance and where they fit in in church history, this will give you a little better overview of their contributions and the significance of how God used them at their particular time. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great men of God who stood at a time in history that was pivotal for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we understand that really this was not so much a work of men as it is a work of God. Lord, that you would not be thwarted. Lord, we know that to you the nations are but a drop in the bucket. And so we know, Lord, that you steer kings and popes and you steer the governments of the world according to your sovereign will. And, Lord, we marvel at how you broke through the darkness of that age to once again bring your word to the forefront and to make it preeminent in the hearts of your people. Lord, that you would again, through this time, establish truth. And I pray, Lord, that we would revere this privilege that we have of opening our Bibles, of not putting our trust in men, but rather every word in the word of God that we would adhere to it, Lord, that we would uh, move forward in our time now in the church to guard and to promote the truths of Scripture as laid down for us by great men of God. And Lord, that we might always be concerned with truth and that we might know, Lord, uh, how to influence men for the gospel and not according to the traditions of men. And so we thank you for this and I pray Lord as we begin to study these individual men who you rose up during this time that we would see in glory most of all in the hand of God as you moved in these men and we can see how a heart that is faithful to you can be used mightily to further your kingdom and so we ask your blessing now upon our time as we go into our worship service that you would be honored by it and Lord we thank you for the grace that you extend to us And uh, may we serve you and worship you well today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, everybody. I'm tired. Does anybody want to preach? I mean, you know.